early 1990s, a mere 30 years ago, America Online was launched into cyberspace, and the Hubble Telescope was launched into outer space. These have changed our lives, and it's an odd parallel to two technological advancements from the Middle Ages, one from 1436 and the other from 1608. From Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz, and you're listening to The After Dinner Scholar. In 1436, German goldsmith Johannes Gutenberg invented a printing press with movable type. In 1608, an unknown person invented the telescope, an idea that spread quickly as a result of printing and was picked up by Galileo, who built and perfected his own, studied the heavens, and had his revolutionary findings printed on a printing press. At the Wyoming School of Catholic Thought this past June, adult learners listened to this introduction to early modern science by Dr. Paul Giesting. So I'd like to take this time to walk us through uh, the readings individually, and then we can break up into groups again to, uh, to discuss whatever aspects of them you want to discuss. There'll be plenty to... Uh, and I've deliberately tried to confuse you in certain ways by, uh, you know, giving giving you uh, voices from different sides of the divide. You know, Bacon, of course, is incredibly pro-technology, incredibly naively pro-technology. Um, Trithemius uh, may be a, a radical misfire from the late 15th century in terms of critiquing the technology of his day. Um, we can discuss whether that worked, whether any of his criticisms work, um, whether we should try to go back to any of his uh, suggestions. And, and in particular, we can let that color how we uh, discuss later technological developments, including the ones in the present. And then, of course, there are three readings about taking astronomy specifically as a field. So it was an ancient field. It's part of the quadrivium. So it was studied intensely by the ancients. Um, there was a large literature already at the time the printing press was invented. But how did the printing press change things? And the printing press changed things before the telescope did, for that matter, before Tycho Brahe's instruments did. So, so this, is, this is meant to be conflicting. Um, it's not conflicting in quite as convenient a package as Prometheus Bound, which has all the conflicts all bound up within itself. Um, so let's start. And so, so Lewis, actually the reading here that I was already most familiar with, uh, I wanted to put a little bit of Lewis in here because we're going to jump from the ancient world and, in fact, the pre-Christian world, right? You know, who was our latest? Uh, it was Plutarch, right? It was probably chronologically our latest author. So that would be the early Christian era. And he's really, a, in, a, in a sense, a pre-Christian voice. He's not taking these, you know, this small band of troublemakers who's starting to spread themselves across the empire seriously. So he is um, he's a, a late, in a sense, pre-Christian voice. And now we're going to jump 1400 years, 1300 years. Um, and so Lewis is here to help us bridge that gap just a little bit. And, and meditate for just a moment on the nature of the medieval intellectual enterprise. So this, and, and what Lewis presents is a world that is hungry for and has a vigorous, vigorous respect for the written word. Perhaps a somewhat uncritical respect for the written word, right? That is, that is a point that uh, he brings up and, and elaborates on later in, in this work, uh, The Discarded Image. So a medieval 
writer of any kind wants to look to an authority and may or may not be all that critical of the authority. Now, if it's Thomas Aquinas, who, who Lewis actually explicitly excludes from his consideration, Aquinas is not the type of writer he's considering in the discarded image. Um, but if you are a, shall we say, writing, if you're lit writing literature in some sense, if you're writing, I don't know, Beowulf, um, obviously I'm getting a little outside my uh, lane here, but if you're writing something, a, a literary work, you're going to refer to Aristotle or a commentator upon Aristotle or someone who's been you know, influenced by Ptolemy, and you're just going to take that into your work, and the purpose of your work is not to critique that, it's just to set the background to set the uh, to set the stage and that forms part of your mental furniture that with which you approach the world and so this world you know when it would when a new text was discovered which must have been months in a while um that would be a fascinating experience for a person with this mindset and then the printing press comes along gutenberg comes along you know taking insights of course nothing starts in a vacuum and there were forms of printing inside and outside the Western world prior to Gutenberg. But this idea of the movable type and being able to create a book, produce a thousand or however many copies of it, distribute those in the, pro in the length of time that would probably take someone to maybe copy it two or three times, um, that was a radical, radical change. And this entered a world that was hungry, hungry for the written word. Um, in a way that, in fact, we're sort of inundated with the written word, and it's, it's hard for us to really, you know, it takes a little effort for us to try to place our minds um, in that context where the written word is highly valued and highly scarce. We are inundated with it. We can find enough of it to overwhelm ourselves with minimal, minimal trouble. And that has, of course, changed even just in, you know, my lifetime, thinking, comparing the 1980s to today. I mean, I, I still have a... I have a dim sense of this, like, you know, going to my grandfather's basement and just, you know, there's this whole shelf of musty books down in this slightly musty basement and the romance of mustiness, right? There's a certain romance of mustiness. You go down there, I mean, it was paradise in a certain sense. Um, you go down there as a kid, a 12-year-old kid, just, you know, sit there, you know, hide away from the world and read a book for a while. I mean, you know, early warning sign of becoming a PhD in something. But, um, so, so, and that, that was a world that would have done that, that would absolutely have done that. Um, and so we come to Trithemius. So Trithemius, obviously not uh, a tremendously well-known author. He's an abbot in the late 15th century. Um, or, uh, and indeed, he wrote in Praise of Scribes in 1492. I just caught that. That's ironic. <laughs> not a significant date in any way, shape, or form. Um, so in that year, so Columbus, Columbus, we could meditate on that later, I'm, uh, whether uh, Columbus, how, how that may have affected the fact that Columbus's uh, great exploit happens in 1492 after printing has existed for a few decades. A few decades. It's gotten started. Um, it's already started to change things. To the point where this abbot is now going to stop and meditate and uh, present this moralizing, you know, homily, encomium on the virtues of writing by hand, and in the, the extract that we have of a much, much longer work, um, it's bookended by these uh, mild, mild critiques of printing. And of course, this work was printed. <laughs> now, was that consistent or inconsistent? 
I mean, I would, I would present the argument that in fact it's consistent. This is a, he's writing for his time and in his mindset, okay, printing is an ad tempore, you know, it's transient, it's convenient, it's nice in its way. So I will present this message for right now today in the context of print because, you know, and then we'll, we'll get our attitude toward print straightened out. We're going to, you know, we're going to properly value uh, scribing for, you know, the really important things. And we'll print these ephemeral things that, you know, might be interesting for a few decades. And then they'll crumble and decay and, you know, and then we'll lose them. So there is um, something that, because this reading packet was obviously long enough already, I did not uh, try to cram this in there. Um, but in, in my research for this, I encountered commentary, and of course, also because it was commentary, I was less interested in, uh, in doing it. I wanted to have as many primary sources as possible. But um, Thomas Jefferson was trying to collect all of the uh, law codes that had been passed by the Virginia legislature. And as it turns out, it's not you know, writing something down and then locking it away, because houses burn down. <laughs> It's printing it and making as many copies as possible and broadcasting it in as many places as possible that preserves a work, as it turns out. It se that seems to be the case. That seems to be a re the reflection um, already in the 18th century that was, there was enough observational data that, oh, this is, this is actually how we preserve texts. Um, so, we can, so we can discuss that and, and make that a sort of cautionary tale for our own critiques of technology. And of course it's hard, it's extremely hard you know, something as world-changing as the printing press, people were not going to be able to foresee, you know, ab initio, what on earth this was going to do to us. And it has done stuff to us. Um, there's, there's no question about that. So Bacon. So we have here, we have just a page and a half, a single aphorism, oh my gosh. So the 17th century, um, in some ways both most wonderful and most horrible century in Western history, at least in my own personal. I mean, how could a century that included the Thirty Years' War not be one of the most horrible centuries in human history? And of course, at the same time, you know, the works we're going to look at next, Galileo, Kepler, moving on to Newton, Leibniz. So all of these greats that, you know, have gotten modern science, which I actually do kind of have a yen for, you know, I think there's something valuable in modern mathematics and science. Um, and that got started in the 17th century. So, so Bacon is here in the 17th century at the, at the outset, and he looks forward and, and he is a, despite having not done much valuable science himself, he does, he is, he is certainly praised by the writers of the Enlightenment to the heavens. Um, as, as putting forth a, a true and valuable uh, outlook on the world. So he has this, you know, compared to our readings yesterday, which have, of course, great caution and reserve about, oh gosh, writing. Ah, I don't know, that would have been an illegitimate development right there. Um, and then, of course, now we go on to printing. Um, so Bacon has this, you know, he turns all of that, you know, on its head, and he's, he's of course, you know, tapping into certain other um, texts from the ancient world. But he is, he's not only uncritical of technological development, of course I have a page and a half extract. You read more of the new, uh, more of his works, you might find somewhat more nuance. 
but he has this naively positive uh, view of technological development to the point of calling it divine. To the point of you know, pulling out from the ancient tradition threads that say, oh yes, people who invent you know, new things contribute to humanity in a way that exceeds, you know, so Coriolanus you know, defending the city of Rome or something like that. The great heroes or you know, even in some sense, you know, Hercules is kind of borderline, but um, you know, so only heroic people who defend the state, but people who you know, expand, and of course I'm you know, kind of mashing parts of this text together right now, but enlarging the power and empire of mankind in general over the universe, such ambition, if it may be so termed, presumably because ambition has a negative connotation, especially in parts of the New Testament, right? Um, is both more sound and more noble than the other two. And then, and then this fascinating uh, section, which is not always what we think of when we think of Bacon, this next sentence. Now the empire of man over things is founded on the arts and sciences alone, for nature is only to be commanded by obeying her. That's a strange, um, and, and uh, paradoxical, and necessarily paradoxical um, statement. In any technological advancement demands a respect for nature because we live within the confines of the universe that obeys the laws that its creator has set for it. I mean, that is no matter what we do. And so if we, if we come unmoored from that, if we come really unmoored from that, we stop making advances. Then we just start you know, living in a fantasy world and we stop um, enhancing the arts and sciences at all. It's a question of how, is, how do we need to keep that in mind? How, does, you know, how do people involved in arts and sciences? And that's why you know, my, personal, my personal belief is that, gosh, many, many, many more people involved in science and technology need a founding in the great books, among other things, um, need this longitudinal view of human history. You know, I don't know what drove me to be that strange outlier. Of course, from my perspective, it's like, why on earth would I be a strange outlier? This seems to me to make simple sense. When I attempted to, as I, as I reflect on it, you know, from the perspective of you know, now, looking back at the 90s when I was making these decisions as a teenager, to, um, to try to basically make a great books program for myself at my public university by, you know, by taking a second major in classics. Because I just could not imagine you know, going out into the world without this grounding of like human beings have been around for a long time. I want to know what the ones who lived in you know, different times with different perspectives have to say. And so, yeah, but, but people who live in the present and have never read even Bacon, for example, um, without that long-term perspective of how, ha well, what has humanity tried? I mean, in a, sense, in a sense, it's its own history, it's its own empirical science. I mean, I'm listening to an audiobook of Livy right now, and it's just, human beings have tried a lot of things, a lot of strange things. Why do those experiments over again when we can, you know, we can read and see what the, uh, or if we do those experiments over again, we should do them in the context of what has already been tried. So, so yeah, so Bacon, Bacon is a, uh, an influential and very conflicted figure. And of course, we'll uh, turn to the new uh, Atlantis in the next section, which I'll invite, I'll invite us to uh, bring 
observations from these texts into the next session um, and see, yeah, and then of course, for that matter, observations from our film last night. You know, could Bacon, how does, how does this world of Bacon's new Atlantis contrast with this metropolis that we saw in the film last night? Uh, I think it's pretty sharp, but uh, more on that uh, in the next section. So, and then, I don't know how many of you felt that I inflicted uh, this many pages of Galileo on you, uh, but there is, there is a lot here. So those of you who did read it, we're going to take a sort of victory lap around the text here, <laughs> which will also have the a benefit of those of you who didn't read it all to get at least a basic familiarity with what's going on here. So, but, but to, you know, to come back to this idea, so astronomy is part of the quadrivium, established part of Western culture. This is what people who, you know, follow the liberal arts and don't dirty themselves with things like, you know, household expenses and things like that. And then we have slaves to do that. Um, we have servants and stewards and so forth to do all of that stuff. Well, I think of the purer things. Well, one of the purer things is this unchangeable, quintessential world of the, the translunar phenomena, you know, the planets and the stars, which do what they do without regard to human events. They may influence human events in some way, um, but they themselves are serene and, you know, timeless. And so they are just as fitting as geometry or the timeless, you know, principles of music, which of course depend on arithmetic. So all of these things where we, we just luxuriate in the order of this created universe. So, so for Galileo to come along with this instrument, this thing that had to be made practically, and then see things and be able to resolve debates that had existed in philosophy, philosophy, because it was natural philosophy, um, for millennia. Um, this, I can't imagine how heady this must have been. I mean, and then that's part of why I walk you through this much of it, is to just, once you have this, like, what can I, what can I look at next? You know, where can I go next with this, you know, and as, as Kepler will go ahead and call it, this royal scepter, this thing that transcends any royal scepter. Um, we'll get to that in a second. But, and in fact, let's start with this preface. So this is a, a piece, this has been translated by someone from the, uh, the mid 19th century. And so he presents his little story that he's engaged in preparing a catalog of the ancient old uh, books that belong to Christ Hospital. And so among these books are some well-known by name to every mathematical student, but which few have ever seen. Now what has changed since the mid 19th century and now in mathematical and scientific training is that we no longer even know the titles of the texts. We only know the names of the scientists and what will happen in another century if things don't take a change in course, which of course, fortunately, human events, things do change course. You know, so, so this is, you know, this is just, you know, the, the, that trend had already started in the 19th century, that people learned these things from textbooks and they still learned their geometry from Euclid for the most part, but, you know, once they went beyond that, they were already learning from contemporary texts, which have their value, but, you know, I mean, just, just the experience for me personally of reading this text after, you know, decades of thinking about astronomy, um, after you know reading 
the sort of books that are still uh, printed, you know, those that they almost have a common form factor, right? These rectangular books about the planets, you can go find one yet today in the public library or in a bookstore um, with all these little details. And this, it's sort of like a tray of facts that's being, you know, tipped into your head. And interesting in itself, but it does not compare with the words of the man himself seeing this for the first time. It just does not. Um, so that, you know, I wanted to pause and, and meditate on that for just a moment. And then, so, so Galileo goes forward, and of course we have a few pages of flowery, you know, setting, setting the tack, set, setting the tone, the political, <laughs> the political and economic environment. How did you get your research funded in 1609? <laughs> well, we have two, two ways are both, one is explicitly present and another is implicitly present. One of them is invent something that allows you to see ships far off when you work for a maritime republic and uh, give them an advantage in battle. That's a, that's a great way to get tenured, right? <laughs> I just, let, let me invent some, you know, boffo piece of military technology and get myself tenure and I don't have to worry about this anymore unless I get, you know, sideways with the Pope or something. Um, and then, and of course, what's he implicitly doing with his dedicatory letter he is appealing to a potential donor, right? So this is, this is how science was done. If you, didn't, if you weren't independently wealthy, which was another way to do it, being a gentleman scientist, and there are any number of uh, early geologists you know, adopted that model, you know, inherit a little money, an estate in Scotland somewhere, wander about looking at rocks, and have the aforementioned steward take care of your estate while you're doing it. I mean, it, it was a business model, and it worked for a while. So what does Galileo do? So he gives you a brief discussion, and in a way, and, and to be honest, this meditation is occurring to me as I'm speaking, it's already in some sense got some of the aspects of a modern scientific paper, as I would recognize it. So a modern scientific paper has, the ones that I'm used to, has an abstract. You know, here's, here's a capsule of what the paper's actually about in case you're interested in reading about this, and if you're not, move on. Because um, after all, we got the printing press and there are many things in the world to read now. <laughs> You'll never get through them all, so you better pick and choose. Then there's an introduction giving some background, which is not um, tremendously uh, present here. And then here's Galileo's method section. How did I come up with these results? Why should you believe any of this data that I'm going to present? Here's why it's reliable. So he discusses the invention of the telescope, and, and he is he will admit briefly that someone else actually invented the telescope. And then he will laud praise on his own highly sophisticated, much better, higher quality telescope. Um, that, and he'll describe to you the, uh, the construction of it. And then, he, you know, and then he starts to give us the observations. And so he's, he's interweaved basically the results section with the discussion section, which is commonly done and is actually much more interesting. If, you have, if you've really got the, if you're trying to be too pure and like, here's the stuff that I saw in a completely different section, that tends to be extremely dry. And then if you go to a discussion section where you say, and this is what I believe this means and why, you know, that's the only section you wanna read. Like, do I have to go read through this results section? Uh, maybe I'll just look at the tables <laughs> or the figures. Um, which is, of course, a common way of reading scientific papers. Um, all right, so, and he, yeah, so he has the construction of the telescope, he has his means of verifying this is how big things are, this is how I know how much I'm magnifying things. 
which he demonstrates with a little Euclidean diagram or two. And then he goes on to the main event. So, yeah. And so just to, he's like, well, I mean, you know, what else is, what's the biggest, most obvious thing in the sky that you could turn the telescope on? Well, the sun's probably kind of dangerous. <laughs> let's not start with the sun. Let's, let's start with the moon. That's also very large. In fact, it's almost exactly the same size in the sky. Let's look at that and find out that it is, to all appearances, another world like our own. Not this perfect sphere, although we could, you know, from, from antiquity, we could see, first of all, that it's blotchy, and second of all, that it does change, right? Its phase does change which is like nothing else in the sky. We cannot, with our unaided eye, see that things visibly change, you know, even though <clears throat> Venus does, for that matter, Mercury does, that they actually have phases, and those were critical observations not too long after the period of this work, um, helping verify the actual structure of the solar system as we now understand it to be. And so, so this is this fascinating collection of observations and deductions from them. So we see, and so we see these figures where we have mountains picked out, and you can see the value that we place on uh, drawing in our field science class here at the college, because that is a critical, critical aspect, of course, especially in the uh, era before photography. But even down to the present day, this is a, a critical skill for observational scientists. So, so we've got these different aspects of the moon picked out, commentary upon them, and how they how um, they must imply that the moon is unevenly, you know, its, its surface is uneven. And in fact, we'll go so far as saying, first of all, so the observations that he makes with the telescope in the center of the moon verify that it's uneven, that has mountain peaks that are picked out by the sunlight, by the dawn on the moon. They have these deep craters, which of course simply means cup. So they, they have these round depressions that we'll call craters, um, which is a little different than the Earth. We don't have so many of those. You can go find them in a, a rare few places um, that Galileo probably didn't know about. I mean, there are volcanic craters. That would have been what he would be familiar with. And so down into the 20th century, that was a going hypothesis for why these existed, was that they were actually uh, volcanic craters. And it was not until not too long before Apollo um, that that theory was finally put to bed that they were convinced that they were from impacts instead. So there are these depressions, there are these mountains, and then there's, then we return to the question of, but the moon looks so round. Why does the moon look so round, even though it clearly has mountains? Are there just not mountains at the edge that we see? These, you know, and this is just, you know, the, the elementary process of, I have, I've opened up this whole new world. I've, you know, I've gone from what the, what everyone could see for as long as humanity has existed of what the moon looks like. And now there is this whole new collection of observations that I have to reconcile. And I have to reconcile them with how the moon actually looks in the sky. And even with the telescope, the moon looks awfully round at the edges. So then we start to, we have to weigh probabilities. Why, so is it possible that the moon simply has mountains in the middle? And for some reason, the edge of the face that faces us is smooth. That seems like a monstrous coincidence. I can't think of a process or a reason why that would be. So I will, I will not definitively put that aside, but I'll choose to put that aside for my own consideration and move on to something I consider more probable. One of them would be 
If I have, I see places on Earth, places in Italy, places in Wyoming for that matter, it wouldn't have been a point of reference for Galileo, but I can see places where, you know, there are mountains, there are, if there are several echelons of mountains in front of me, they will statistically, as we would now say, sort of tend to even one another out. There will probably be a peak in the gap, you know, in this row, where there's a gap in this row, and so they will tend to, you know, come closer to evening out, which is probably the most, down to the present day, the most likely explanation. And then he offers what to Galileo would have been very plausible, and it would be centuries before we had really any way of uh, disproving this. But, I mean, with the Earth, you know, so the Moon has these dark blotches, it has mountains. Why are these things different colors? Well, they must be seas. So, of course, we have Maria and oceans named on the surface of the Moon because it made the most sense. Um, it was, what's, what's our point of reference? It's Earth, okay. So, and then, of course, if that's, that's our point of reference, we also know that Earth has air around it. And that, as Galileo says, the ether, which we presume pervades the universe and did until very recently, um, it's just denser around the moon for some reason. I haven't even got the idea of gravity as such yet, although obviously the idea that things tend toward a center and that Jupiter, as we'll see, somehow must lug its satellites around with it um, is obviously going to take us in that direction. But, you know, if the moon has an atmosphere, as we would say in modern terms, that would also tend to smooth things out. Right? So if we, we look at on Earth and mountains off in the blue, blue distance, we make out fewer and fewer details, and they seem smoother and smoother. Entirely plausible. It was the right thing to do, in some sense, to speculate. And that's, science depends on, science is a creative enterprise. And Galileo was a, a creative observer of the sky. So he, he is um, really, a, he is down to this day a great model of how the scientific method works. And then, so he, in trying to get a grasp of how exceptional these things that he's observing in the moon is, he, he engages in this little uh, Euclidean exercise here on page 80 of the reading packet, where he's using basically material from book three and book six or of the uh, elements to argue, and then you apply a few numbers to it, which of course Euclid would never deign to do. But that was part and parcel of astronomy is to you know, be able to actually, okay, and then I impose an actual angle measurement on this and an actual distance measurement on this. And so I can conclude that, as a matter of fact, these mountains must be yay large. Um, they must be larger than any mountain I know about. And of course, this is, at this era, we have so, in the contemporary world, we have so many things that we would take for granted um, that would not have been the case in Galileo's age. So, of course, who had explored the Himalayas and actually come back with any idea as to how tall, say, Mount Everest is, first of all. Second of all, how do I measure how tall a mountain is? So we're used to getting elevations from sea level, but in a more common sense way, wouldn't we just measure it from the bottom of the mountain? So in that case, Everest might not be as tall as these mountains that uh, Galileo is seeing in the, on the moon. And in fact, of course, you know, if you've got 20th century technology and you can take soundings, you find out that the, actually the tallest mountains on Earth from their bases are in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So, so that's, so he's, he's commenting and probably comparing to, you know, some baseline out in the Alps, probably Mont Blanc and the other, you know, tallest Alps, whatever those are, um, which I'm, I'm an American geologist, so I can't quote that from memory. So, 
but that's so he's saying these these things are massive and impressive and you know and that's so so there's just a sense of wonder right there's just this i'm i'm exploring this and i deploy the mathematics not to like suck the life out of it which i think people who hate mathematics feel like often does to a subject um but i'm deploying that to to sort of get i mean i want i want to enhance my sense of wonder by actually saying well it's not just tall it's four miles tall as a matter of fact that adds something to it realizing that you know gannett peak is actually taller than fremont's peak you know and at some point like everything it can be overdone but you know this is the sort of i mean this is this is a, a kid gambling about in a meadow right i mean he is just he has found this place that no one ever this in some sense place that no one ever has and he gets to be the first one to explore it or one of the first ones to explore it and one of the first ones to tell us about it. So of course he comes back. Of course he comes back and tells us about it. And of course he wants, you know, money and fame and, you know, a comfortable life. And he and Galileo wanted all of those things. But he still has that sense of, you know, the sense of wonder. And I would be I, I'd be so bold as to assert that I was actually the, the primary thing. So then he and then he turns to the fixed stars for a while. And so he, and he can resolve questions that have now been, what are these nebulous stars? So there are a few things that with the naked eye, if your naked eye is sharper than my nearsighted naked eyes, um, you can look at the sky and see a few places where there looks like there are blurs in the sky rather than just single points, even with the naked eye. You can see the Pleiades, there's some mistiness around that. Um, you can see the beehive, uh, Praesepi. You can see a few of these objects that are blurry, nebulous, they look cloudy, literally. And so, and then of course there's the whole Milky Way, right, that we see in the summer sky. And so, you know, and so people could argue with the level of naked eye observation, why is that? What is that? Are there clouds out there in the realm of the fixed stars? Because they seem, these seem to move like the fixed stars, they must be out there. Um, or, or what are they? And Galileo can simply say, oh, actually there's a, bunch of little stars that when I don't have the telescope in front of my eye look blurry. But if I have the telescope here, I can make out 10 times as many stars or 20 or 100 times as many stars as I could see with the naked eye. Ha! Huh. Who knew? And now that question, I mean, it's not completely, completely resolved. And of course, there really are clouds in the sky along the fixed stars, uh, as it turns out. But you know, now we're, we're again, we have broken through something that was a barrier for millennia, literally millennia. And this royal scepter, as uh, Kepler calls it, has, has told us something that we could not. And of course, we need our eye. We need to be able to build it in the first place. And it needs to obey the laws that God gave light to follow. But once we have all these things in place, now there's this new world. There is this new, um, entirely new uh, realm of human endeavor. So, and then of course he places it rightly at the end. And of course, Galileo. I don't. I don't know that he lived long enough to observe this. But of course, Galileo, in the course of applying for grant money, let's put it that way, rather than sucking up, let's say applying for grant money, um, calls them the Medicean stars, you know, hoping to apply for this grant from the Grand Duchy of Tuscany. I don't know if it's a Grand Duchy yet. Uh, and so he, I do think Galileo's sense of self would be such that 
he would be tickled to know that we now call them the Galilean satellites. <laughs> I think he would. I think he would appreciate that, um, which we do. Um, so the four largest moons of Jupiter. And the next one wasn't, I think the fifth one wasn't discovered until 1892 or something like that. Don't quote me on that date, but I'm pretty sure it was the 19th century. So those were the four that we knew about. And, you know, and then Saturn has one that couldn't have taken that long to discover Titan. Titan is quite large, as we were talking about earlier yesterday. Titans are quite large, um, hence the name. And then, of course, we couldn't discover uh, Neptune's large moon until we discovered Neptune, so that would have to wait till the 19th century. Um, so, and, and so I've given you some of the text, and I've cut a lot of it, um, and, I, and I've just given you the figure just to, just to give you the sense, like, back up and look at this and like, okay. So some nights were cloudy so that he couldn't take observations, but, I mean, just that this was the... Okay, okay, this is 1610. Oh, heavens. I thought it was 1609. <laughs> that makes Kepler's uh, comment that we're going to get to here in a moment even sharper, doesn't it? Okay, so that, uh, the, the brackets here indicate a figure caption. So the original configurations, so this is page 87, of Jupiter's satellites observed by Galileo in the months of January, February, March of 1610. So it does trail off into March? Yeah, the first two days of March of 1610 published the first edition of his book in 1610 in Venice. So, so this was, I mean, assuming, you know, making whatever adjustments to the personal equation as Doyle once wrote that you would need to, to say, okay, if I'm, I am a person to whom this is the most fascinating thing that could possibly have ever happened to humanity. I am discovering new things about astronomy, about part of the quadrivium that people have argued about since before Aristotle. Of course, I'm going to be out here with this thing every night. I don't even think they had, well, I don't know when coffee began to be a thing. <laughs> but, you know, I, I can imagine his sleep and wake cycle changed somewhat during this period that he was up for a while. Um, and of course, this was a brand new thing, right? So this is, this is something that we probably have some dim awareness from the literature that we have had, you know, the chance to uh, imbibe that you know, the crazy astronomer up in his tower all night. That was not a trope. <laughs> that could not have been a trope in 1610 because the telescope had just been employed for this purpose for the very first time. So Galileo is setting this in some sense. Um, so he's going up to whatever, you know, elevated observation point and working out, you know, and, and, and coping with I mean, the, the literature on how to observe, how to construct telescopes, how to, you know, how to time your observations and, you know, measure where you're at in the sky, you know, there, there was a beginning. Of course there was a beginning because there was the, you know, there was naked eye astronomy. And so, but immediately after this, this becomes, you know, ramified into, you know, the system of declination and right ascension and the whole way that we map the sky and how precisely we map it. Um, all of that had to wait for the telescope. So this was just, you know, this was an explosion. You know, this was a little explosion starting to blast its way across, you know, the, the field of people who were interested in this. And so this was the most exciting thing he could possibly do. So for weeks, he is out there charting where these little stars are wandering around Jupiter and confirming that they stay around Jupiter, that they are not part of the fixed stars. And he clinches this the reason why I uh, resume giving you text here at the end 
is these last one, two, three, four, five, six observations include or don't include, perhaps the star was being occulted, was being actually eclipsed by uh, Jupiter on February 28th, or perhaps he just didn't draw it. Uh, I would have to go back to the text, but <laughs> I'm a scientist. I'm looking at the figure and I'm like, oh wait, if I need, if I need the details unpacked, I'll go back to the text. <laughs> That's how it's done sometimes. So, but he is tracking the progress of Jupiter compared to this fixed star and of Jupiter's satellites, staying with it as Jupiter passes this fixed star. He is trying to get as many lines of evidence as possible to bear that this is really what's happening. He is trying to head off every possible argument that he can. I mean, not every possible argument, but every argument that he can, um, that this is somehow, these are just fixed stars and Jupiter's, Jupiter by itself is doing this because it's wobbling in some weird way, which in some way would be more uh, believable, perhaps. I mean, because this was, this observation was also critical in the debates that were already happening at the time in astronomy, because if Jupiter, well, so the, the Earth, a, a line of argument would run, the Earth must be the center of the cosmos because the moon spins around it. And that, that's, that's clear. Um, it, it doesn't take much reflection to conclude that that must be the case. So if everything else is revolving around the Earth, okay, that's easy. That's what happens. You know, everything revolves around the center of the universe and it happens to be the center of the Earth where Satan lives, but that's another story. Um, that's another story for another completely different WSCT. But so, so that the Ptolemaics, you know, which, you know, just generally the Aristotelian or the common sense system, we're here, we're clearly not moving, everything else is moving around us um, because that's what it's doing, right? We can see that. Then, but Copernicus comes along and says, you know what, a lot of this would be simpler if we put the sun at the center. And then Brahe comes along and says, you know, Copernicus had something there but maybe it would be easier if we still have the Earth at the center because we're still clearly not moving. But everything circles around the sun. So we have these at least three world systems in competition already at this point. And so Galileo comes along with his observation, oh, you know what? Those things are wandering around Jupiter as Jupiter is clearly moving around something, be it the sun, be it the Earth, it's not clear, but Jupiter's moving around something and these are following it. So this is not a valid argument against Copernicanism or Brahianism, if you will, that things must orbit the center of the, everything must be orbiting the center of the universe. That, that physics must be false because here it is not happening in the sky. Something that's contradictory to that we can observe clearly in the sky. So this was a massive, I mean, it's fascinating in itself and then fascinating for the debates that were going on. So. So Kepler, we just have a couple of pages from Kepler commenting on this. And in fact, the real, the real message um, that I wanted from this was simply this. The sidereal messenger of Galileo has been for a long time, this is page 94, has been for a long time. And as, as a matter of fact, a long time means one year. Because the printing press. So. So Galileo taking this <laughs> royal scepter, I love that image, um, and looking at the sky, published this a year ago. I am now talking about this in, Augs in uh, August, not Augsburg, 
Yes, Augsburg, not August. There we go. <laughs> Some point in 1611, um, and it's been a long time, because everybody who's interested in it went out and found a copy because they could, right? It was not, you know, if, this, if Galileo had done this in 1410, and had people, you know, copying by hand. First of all, who would he have found? You know, I need to be copying scripture over here, or I need to be copying Thomas Aquinas maybe, um, as opposed to this, like, I mean, you know, creation is nice and all, but, you know, this, get in line, okay? Just get in line. Um, whereas in 1610, when printing is, you know, well-established, has been around for over a century, it blazes across the landscape. Like, you know, like Bonanza, right? You remember the, the tile for that flame just like licking its way across the paper. I mean, that's what's happening with this, right? It's just spreading across Europe in what would seem blazingly fast. You know, not quite as fast as the internet, but dang, I mean, you do have to stop and read it too. So, you know, by that point, it's, it's really not that much slower than what we have today. So science, yeah, science is, you know, there, there are people locked away in laboratories working on problems that no one else cares about because they don't realize there's anything to care about. And then, these, and then these things come out and they revolutionize the world. But then there are these races and there are these you know, tizzies of excitement which had been triggered at this point and were now well underway. Um, so we're seeing a new phenomenon in human affairs, this, you know, this, this race for scientific methods, um, not just scientific observations, but also um, interpretations, right? Yeah, there's so much. There's so much in this text that we could comment on, but I'm going to go ahead. Um, and I've already uh, hammered on the point of uh, O telescope, instrument of much knowledge, more precious than any scepter. Um, I've battered on that enough um, for now, so we can bring that up if we want to. There, there's there's plenty of other points in that text. So the last piece for right now is Eisenstein. So Eisenstein is a scholar writing. Um, She's doing work in the 70s, and this, this is a abbreviated work from the 80s. And so I've, I've pulled six pages from this, um, commenting on how, once again, I mean, the theme, obviously, for right now is, is the printing press. That's what I'm putting before your eyes, is like the, the role of the printing press um, and changing all sorts of things. And so even though the telescope, obviously the telescope was interesting, Obviously, Brahe, Tycho Brahe's instruments and the generation before the telescope, where he's got, you know, bronze astrolabes, you know, 20 feet across, or I forget the exact dimensions. But he can make observations that are more precise than had ever been made before. What motivated that? Why were people interested in that? Printing had made the results of the ancients so available that they could now be read and compared with each other intensely in a way that had never, which is what Copernicus's insights arise from that context. Um, and so, and then Copernicus can print tables, people can look at them, judge them, evaluate them. Are they, are they doing a better job than Ptolemy's tables? And they can improve on them themselves. So this, this instant dissemination of knowledge is, is what makes modern science work. It's, it's why it exists. And so, so this, and, and recognizing that there are many different roles that need to be played in science. So the, you need creative big idea people. You need people doing observations. And of course, most people straddle at least two of these categories. 
you need people interpreting the observations and being critical. So there's the big create, so there's the observations, of course, you can't get started without seeing something. We have the big ideas. We have the people who critique the big ideas and the people to, you know, fulfill other roles, which we'll talk about more when we talk about the new Atlantis. In her book, The Printing Revolution in Early Modern Europe, Elizabeth Eisenstein wrote, quote, laboratory facilities were lacking to 16th century observers. Stargazers still had to rely on their naked eyes, but the flow of information had been reoriented, and this had an effect on natural philosophy that should not go ignored, close quote. Join us next week as Dr. Paul Giesting leads us into a discussion of technology using Francis Bacon's book, The New Atlantis. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.